Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our first podcast of 2023. I'm Annabelle, and I'm absolutely fine, but I've come into this new year not so much so flooded with resolve as a completely blank page. I feel like I've wiped out a lot of the shit that I know I don't want to do. Haven't replaced it with anything at all. Don't really know how to. So I feel sort of directionless and uh, entirely in neutral gear. Not in reverse, which is a good thing, but definitely not with my foot through the floor. So I don't really know what happens next. I feel like I'm suspended in jelly in some way. Maybe it's because I don't want to come back down to earth because January is not the happiest of times but we'll talk more about happiness later how are you emily i'm actually fine but i have realized that i'm at a real sort of crossroads in life where i basically i bought a pair of boots a pair of boots in the sale which obviously everybody knows is catastrophically stupid well your thing shoes to do anyway. generally are <laughs> yeah. emily's husband and i both take a really really dim view of our footwear choices they usually sort of encrusted with pearls or something Okay, I've controlled the pearls, but they've got a bit of hardware on them. They've got a bit of a pointy toe. They're a little bit cowboy, a little bit ankle. Anyway, they're fantastic and I love them. They're everything that I... I've actually had my eye on them since we interviewed uh, Lucinda Chambers from Collagerie because it was her part of her collab with Jigsaw. Anyway, I've got the boots, but I'm also no longer the kind of person who will then wear the boots out immediately and come back sort of blistered and hobbling. Now I'm wearing them in. So I've worn them to cook supper in. I've worn them to, I actually went to the end of the, the end of the road with them. I've worn them a little bit. I would be wearing them now, but actually they're, they're covered in a kind of waxy dubbin uh, because I'm trying to soften the leather. I mean, it's interesting <laughs> tension that, isn't it? It's a sort of rock and roll enough to buy the silly boots, but too middle-aged to risk a blister. <laughs> Basically. It's like I Basically. have to continue wearing my old trainers, which genuinely have gaping, gaping holes in the top of them. Like, they're black, and if I don't wear a black sock, I look really very suspect because my, my white-socked toe will be poking through. But my new trainers give me blisters and these are my walking <laughs> shoes so what's the answer I'm gonna to have to start wearing my new trainers around the house aren't I like sort of orthopedic support shoes which they almost are which is basically what I'm doing exactly so it is is wearing them in I can't believe how sensible I am do you know what Remember I mean? your mother used to say that to you. you need to wear them in yeah and there I am so anyway but they make me happy so you know just looking at them happiness speaking of happiness 
Today, we have someone here who actually teaches happiness. I mean, how exciting is that? At UCLA, of all places, to people who are doing MBAs. Professor Cassie Holmes, she's actually a professor. Professor Cassie Holmes is an award-winning academic and social psychologist who, nearly defeated by the grind, decided to learn how to have a happier, more fulfilling existence. And, happily, she's written a book about it called Happier Hour, full of practical tips and wisdom to help everyone find their happy hour. But before she gives us her masterclass, Cassie, how are you? (laughs) I am absolutely fine. But I am scared to shake people's hands and I will not pick up a pot because I injured my wrist four months ago and I haven't had time to go to the doctor. (laughs) So I don't have time to take care of myself, but we'll be talking about spending time on things that really matter. And apparently my own wrist is not something that matters. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm happy to spend time on coffee dates, on having a glass of wine and all of that stuff. And actually I will take my, I've taken my children to the doctor many times in the last three months for various things, but yet I have not taken myself to the doctor. But just wait till your wrist hurts so much that you can't actually lift your glass of wine and then maybe you'll be like, <laughs> right? okay, I need to have a that's look the at thing. <laughs> that will be the thing that sends me to the doctor. That'll be the pinch point because your book is, you know, ostensibly about happiness, but really it's very much about time, isn't it? And about absolutely taking control of your time. And it's almost like a cookery book, and the ingredients are, you know, sections and dollops and fragments of time. And how did you come up with this sort of formula around happiness. Yeah, and it it really started from a a dark place of me being quite unhappy because of feeling a lack of time. And so when I was uh, earlier in my career, I was an assistant professor at Wharton, and it was just one of these crazy days that I'm sure so many can relate to of between work. So I had gone up to New York that morning um, to give a talk. And then it was like rushing between meetings. And then I caught the very last train that would get me home to my four-month-old and my husband asleep in Philly. And I would just remember as I was like sitting on the train and looking out the window as the darkness was rushing by and the little houses where people were sleeping and I felt like I should be sleeping too. I was like, I don't know if I can keep up, right? Between the pressures of work, wanting to be a good partner, wanting to be a good parent, wanting to be a good friend, the never ending pile of chores, there simply were not enough hours in the day to get it all done, let alone to do any of it well, let alone to enjoy any of it along the way. And I was like, I don't think I can do this. And so I actually very much was considering like, I don't think I can do this. So maybe the answer is quitting. Maybe I quit this job that I had worked so hard for. I mean, I (laughs) like got my PhD. I got this like dream job at the top business school in the States. And I'm like, I don't think I can do it. And so it was really that time as a limitation that was making me question my whole sort of existence. And I did not quit because I (laughs) am still a professor just at a different business school. But I I realized I needed to change something. And the change, since I am a researcher, a social psychologist, a lot of the questions that I'm grappling or was grappling with and actually continue to in, in some cases 
are testable and I could look and study them to find what are answers so that it's not just asking an opinion of one person, <laughs> you know, what do I do? Or like me in my lowest state of like, you know, what do I think I can do? It's actually looking to data to look at patterns to drive some advice. And so I've been conducting the research for the last 15 years, applying it to my life and while I am not spending the time to take myself to the doctor, I will say that I am very, I am happy. I'm no longer <laughs> in that sort of distressed, like, shit, I can't do any of it stage. Like, yes, I have a lot of unanswered emails. Yes, there's a lot of people that are probably annoyed with me because I'm not doing what they've asked me to do. But I am spending on the things that matter. I mean, when we think about happiness, I think a lot of people think that's chasing something ridiculous. It's sort of dancing and juggling with sunbeams. But happiness isn't really about, you know, extreme joy, is it? It's more about, from your point of view, just feeling reasonably positive during your days and satisfied with the way your life is running. Exactly. And so when I use the term happiness, and it does have that connotation. And I, I suspect there's even some cultural differences in the States versus the UK. <laughs> maybe Even in the UK, it's like, oh my gosh, that sort of silly, silly thing that um, folks are striving for. Cause, but that's not what I mean. As What I'm talking about is what we refer to in the psychology literature as subjective well-being. So it's our well-being and the subjectivity is like, it's based off of how we personally feel. So feeling more positive than negative in your day-to-day, -day, so during your experiences, as well as an overall sort of evaluation of your life as satisfying, as fulfilling, as meaningful. And um, those feelings, feeling positive in our experiences, um, are very closely related and a, a sort of predictor of feeling satisfied about our experiences. There are cases where they're, you can sort of disentangle the two. But really what I want and the advice that I give based off of the research is towards satisfaction. It's about contentment in our days so that, you know, to your question, how are you doing? It's like, I'm absolutely fine. And like, you wanna feel like you are sort of fine and then there's, of course, buts, and that's, it's those buts that I'm really looking um, to help people address so that they, maybe there wouldn't even be a but. It's like, I'm actually fine. <laughs> what I find really um, uh, accessible and helpful about your book is it deals with the small things. So it deals with the sort of Lego bricks, the building blocks of your day. If you could just take those apart and look at those, then the result might be quite a lot bigger and more substantial than the sum of the parts is the way that it feels anyway. Absolutely. And I actually think that it's those little bits that are sort of the secret to our overall satisfaction and our happiness in life. And it's those little bits that we are often distracted from. That Like they are there in our days, but we might not even notice them or we're on our phones <laughs> of like not even paying attention to them as they're happening. And that's natural. There's actually a psychological tendency that we have to adapt. So hedonic adaptation is our tendency to get used to things over time. So when we do the same thing again and again, when we're with the same person or people again and again, it stops having the same intense emotional impact. And it's really good that we're adaptive 
in the face of bad stuff because it makes us resilient, you know, and tolerant. But the problem is that we also adapt to those good things such that we don't notice them. Um, and so as I, I shared this example um, or this story in the book of me walking my son um, to preschool one day, and it was, it was such a perfect moment. Like objectively, it was it was shiny and joyous and like birds singing in the trees, the sun shining. The, and it was something that I, I had worked really hard to sort of set up this perfect experience because I had gotten a job so I could move back to Southern California where there would be sun shining, where I was living next to beautiful UCLA campus and could walk my son to preschool on campus, me to my office, all of this was hard to construct. And my husband was having a, like had a job in the same place finally that we were both sort of happy. And then, but it was this random morning where it was such perfection. And my son, he was three at the time, he was sort of skipping along uh, beside me. And I was like yelling at him. I'm like, hurry up, you know, like <laughs> I have to get to a meeting. And um, he's like, no mom. And then he, I was, he was, and then I'm like charging ahead. And then he's like, no, mom, wait. And I turn around and I see he was had his face buried in a bush of white roses. And before I could stop myself, I'm like, we don't have time to stop and smell the roses. And when I heard those like words come out of my mouth, I was like, holy cow. You know, as a time and happiness expert, I'm literally yelling at my son that we don't have time to stop and smell the roses on this beautiful, perfect day, because I was stressed out in my head, planning for what's next, thinking about what's next, anxious, thinking of all I had to do that day with so few hours to get it all done before I picked him up. And that just goes to show that there are these sort of opportunities for joy in our days. It's just we need to pay attention. Like I actually, me pausing for all of three seconds to admire the roses. Like I did have three seconds. And actually on that walk, if I weren't in my head, I could be walking at the same speed, but actually enjoying it and being mentally present um, with my son. And presumably, you know, you've walked past those roses uh, so many times that you're just not even seeing them anymore. And this is what you're saying, just stop, look around, and you might be amazed at what you have kind of what's available to you rather than seeking constantly new things that are, you know, not necessarily attainable, but are meaning that you stop and, I don't know, making the most of the precious stuff that you've already built, right? Absolutely. It's like right there, already there, available to you using your words, which is perfect. And you're already spending the time. So it doesn't require more time because that's the thing that is so daunting is that we don't feel like we have enough time to do everything that we want to and need to do. And absolutely, like given our unrealistic lists of all that we want to and think we can and should be doing at any moment, and that gets exacerbated by 
our, you know, phones where at any moment we can see through social media all the amazing things that uh, folks are doing at that moment. But also we can be doing a whole lot of stuff at every single moment <laughs> through our phones. We can be ordering groceries. We can be learning Spanish. We can be, you know, attending a talk that will inspire us and educate us. Of course, we don't have all the hours to do all of those things available to us. But in the time that we do have, and in the time that we're already spending, there's a lot of joy that's available. We just have to pay attention to not be distracted, um, both by ourselves, you know, like what's going on in our minds and our to-do lists and our planning, but also, I mean, putting the phone away physically. There's studies that show that the mere presence, they had this um, experiment where they had friends dining together and um, they instructed some of the folks to put their phones away, out of sight, totally away, whereas the others could have the phone on the table. And what they found was that the um, folks who had the phone away out of sight enjoyed their dining experience more because they were more engaged and sort of put the other way, those who simply having their phones present It's not like they were on their phones even. Just having their phones present made them enjoy their dining experience less because they were more distracted. They were thinking about all they could be doing and maybe should be doing through that phone as opposed to like paying attention to the people right there in front of them. What I also really love about your book is that there are so many examples. Like In the introduction, I'd written empirical research and Adam, I was like... What is empirical research? We were talking about it, but there are so many like tiny examples. Like I love the the one about the the joy that people get when they give time. Um, so you ask people to stay back after a class for an extra 15 minutes and help some junior students with their essays. Or you say to the other people, hey, you've got a bonus 15 minutes for you can leave the lesson. And the people who stayed and did the extra 15 minutes felt better about everything than the people who'd had the bonus free time. And I think that I suppose because we're so time, we feel so time starved and because we are so time poor and because we are so kind of concerned about, I guess, the the idea that we're not doing enough always and that somehow that we don't realise that actually the tiniest gains, that's the thing, isn't it, can actually translate to a big change. Yeah. And that sort of feeling of being time poor, time starved or not having enough time is is what motivated my research because it was what I was grappling with and really motivated the book. And I, um, Happier Hour, it came out uh, in the U.S. Um, in September. And there's so much thirst for for this. It's, it's done really well because people are really trying to figure out, oh, my gosh, I have too little time. And how do I combat this feeling? Um, and how do I spend the hours of my days so that I don't feel so limited? Because when we feel, um, to the empirical research, sorry, Annabelle, um, <laughs> the research shows that when we feel time poor, it has really negative effects. So it makes us less healthy. So like not going to the doctor, me as an example there, it makes us less likely to exercise. It makes us less confident in being able to achieve what we set out to do. It makes us less happy and it makes us less nice. So Emily, that that study that you talked about, 
when we feel like we don't have a lot of time, what we tend to do is not spend time to help others out. We tend to sort of continue in our rush state, taking care of ourselves, sort of hoarding this resource of time that we have so little of. But in in those studies, what we found was actually when you spend time on something that increases your sense of self-efficacy. So it makes you feel like, oh my gosh, I have accomplished a lot with just a little time. And that's like, oh, I can accomplish way more than I thought with the time that I have. And it lessens that sense of limitation and increases the sense of time affluence. And so with giving time to help another out, spending time for others actually makes us feel like, wow, I can do a lot. Like that helping someone increases your sense of self-efficacy. And from that increases a sense of time affluence, lessening that sense of limitation Another way of spending that it can increase self-efficacy is exercise, which is another thing that when we feel like we don't have time that we tend to neglect. It's like, I don't have time to go for a run, you know, right? Or I don't have time to go to the gym. But if you actually do, and there's research that shows that even exercise has a direct effect on our mood, but it also makes us feel better about ourselves. It makes us feel that we have accomplished and we can accomplish more. And with that, it makes us feel less time for This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Now, you guys know that we're not shy about getting things off our chest. The tiny inconveniences that can ruin our days to the big, overwhelming worries that can flood our nights. Trouble is, we all got into the habit of saying, I'm absolutely fine. Emily and I added the but specifically to get off autopilot and give ourselves the space to say what we were really experiencing. But we weren't always so free with our inner furies. A few years ago, I began experiencing debilitating panic attacks because I felt I couldn't tell anyone all the things that I was feeling, that I was not coping, that I felt like a failure. I was so ashamed, so I kept it all bottled inside. And of course, it started leaking out. It was only when I found a therapist and began sharing those doubts and insecurities with her that the panic began to dissipate. Because therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash midult. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash midult. Better help, because sometimes the best thing to do is acknowledge that we are not, in fact, absolutely fine. And you're not talking about, for example, helping with someone. You're not talking about, and now you must volunteer for five hours. You're talking about, it could be a random act of kindness. It could be a 90 second less situation, aren't you, to just engage. Um, Because sometimes time feels like the enemy, not because there isn't enough of it, but because it's sort of has a grip on us in a really strange, nefarious way. I mean, I sometimes feel like my life is running me, totally. you know, and I've lost track of what those pockets. And so, uh, so an exercise that was interesting to me in your book is this idea of a time tracking exercise, which also terrified me because you're saying, OK, so break <laughs> your day into half hour chunks right the way through. Okay. Write everything that you do and how it made you feel. And for me, that's a bit like 
being scared to look at your bank balance because <laughs> you know you don't quite know what I'm quite scared to look at how much time I waste and I don't mean waste doing something frivolous that might give me joy I mean waste as in it just goes because I'm in a state of such panic it runs through my fingers as I stare at the wall or stare at a screen mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that something that you hear about? Absolutely. It's that sense of panic. And that's actually why I, I, there's that sort of mental hurdle to get over to take control of our time because it does feel like it's so out of our control. And, that, and that's really what I'm hoping to help people do is to really sort of make it feel like you have control over it. Like talk about something that can undermine our sense of satisfaction and happiness it is feeling out of control that we yes because i don't think that i'm too busy i think i'm appropriately busy but i am not connecting with time in the right way so i feel deranged (laughs) and that's that's sort of that's unnecessary though it it? it is because um the time tracking exercise so as you mentioned it is over the course of a week writing down for each 30 minute increment what you're doing but in addition rating on a 10 point scale, how did doing that make you feel? And while I will admit it is a sort of tedious exercise and even some of my students have been like, this is tedious, but those same (laughs) students are like, oh my gosh, afterwards it was so impactful because the information is itself giving you control. It is like, it's something that is like, until you actually have it clearly in front of you, it seems scary and nebulous and that it, like, you, you, don't, you can't get a hold on it. But simply writing it down allows you to see, okay, how are you spending your time? And then even more helpfully looking across your week, what are those activities that actually do bring you a great deal of satisfaction? And sometimes they're not what you predict, as well as what are those activities that like, pop up and you're like, holy cow, I do not feel great coming out of those activities. And that's surprising because, you know, I thought I liked doing X. I thought I liked socializing. But then you realize (laughs) like, oh, actually in this form of like one-on-ones with these people, I feel super great. But (laughs) this group of people, no. And so that is, there's a lot of information there. And then with that information, it's really the, the secret is becoming just more intentional. Again, like a lot of all of the advice that I'm giving in the book is not like changing your life in crazy dramatic ways. It's about being intentional of whether it's spending your time, more time in ways that do give, give you satisfaction, minimizing the amount of time you spend on ways that are unnecessary and don't bring you joy, but also paying attention during those times. So it's about intentionality, both how you spend your time as well as while you're spending that time. It's very powerful for me to hear you use the word intentionality because that is what I lose. Because when you're in the slipstream, then you you don't have any intention and you don't have any attention really right. to pay to what you're doing at any minute of a specific day. You just sort of end up there, like really, really boring time travel. <laughs> you say, oh, oh, here I am doing this other thing that makes me feel insane that I don't enjoy. And how did I end up here? You know, in, in the microcosms of your day. So it's interesting, the idea of intention 
and I, I see how this terrifying time tracking diary thing, tedious and terrifying time tracking diary thing could help with that. You identify, don't you, there's a sort of sweet spot in terms of time that we could claw back for ourselves, which is that I think less than two hours uh-huh. leads to potentially unhappiness a day and more than five hours potentially is not going to make you feel great either. Will you, can you tell us about that? Yeah, and that research, I think, um, so in, in that moment where I'm like, I don't think I can do it, and I was like, I think I should quit. The question is, if I like move to a sunny slow place island, which is actually what I had in my head, I will just move and like live on vacation for the rest of my life, then surely I would be happier. Because Didn't I'd I ha- say to you this morning, Emily, um, yes. I just want a country cottage. <laughs> That was yes. as far I said, as I got. Do you... I don't want I know, a country cottage. But... I'd go almost immediately insane in a country cottage. <laughs> but I so relate to your island dream. Yeah, and my... No, but it's, it's <sighs> the same... It's, sorry, it's the same as your blank space at the beginning... Your blank page at the beginning of the year. It's like this blank... Make it all go away. Terrifying... As or, and also simultaneously, how exciting to be able to fill it with all these things, and then you think about what you might fill it with, and then that's terrifying. Totally. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, but it's it's exactly that. Like we have this sort of daydream that if only I had all of the hours of my day to spend exactly how I wanted, then surely I would be happier. But we looked at we looked at what's the relationship between the amount of discretionary time people have and their happiness. And what we found across our studies, we looked at tens of thousands of individuals. What we found is that an inverted U-shape, so like an arc, (laughs) meaning that on both ends of the spectrum, too little time and too much time, people are unhappy. And the too little time is the time poor, time stressed. And that's understandable because that's higher levels of stress. And in that data set, we found it was less than approximately two hours of discretionary time in the day. But I think the more interesting part is that other end of the spectrum that with in that data set more than approximately five hours of discretionary time in the day, people are also less happy. I wouldn't hang my hat on the specific amount of time, but it's just pointing out and the data supports that there is such thing as having too much time. And the reason for that is because We want to be somewhat productive, or even if it's not productive, we want to spend some hours of the day feeling like we have something to show for it. And when we don't, then it actually undermines our sense of purpose. And with that, we feel less satisfied. So Annabelle, in your cottage, I'm sure like the first week would actually be blissful. But then the next week, you're like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do that makes me feel fulfilled. Um, And we do find that actually the too much time effect doesn't happen when people are spending their discretionary time in ways that feel quote unquote worthwhile. So worthwhile to them, whether that is a hobby that is like really enriching and allows you to sort of develop and build exercise, um, also social connection. You see that there isn't such thing as too much social connection. Now I want to be clear, it's not like going out to, you know, like cocktail parties every night necessarily. It's really Thank God. (laughs) That sounds exhausting. (laughs) It is engaging in relationships and having those conversations that uh, feel connecting in whatever sort of way that is for you. So it's not that available time is bad. 
But it is, Annabelle, to your point, it's like, okay, with my available time, how do I spend it so that at least some of the hours of my day are spent in ways that feel worthwhile? And then there, like, it doesn't have to be all, right? Because there's that sort of portion in the middle where there is, there's a positive role for um, relaxation, (laughs) you know, watching TV. But actually interesting in the time tracking research and the studies, like when my students do it too, is that TV is fun for like that first bit, but when you're like on hour five of binging, it's actually less enjoyable because of what I said before about hedonic adaptation, right? So at the beginning, it's like that idea of like, at the end of the day, with your glass of wine, turning on Netflix, that is bliss for the first like half hour, 45 minutes, hour, maybe even, but like hour three, then you're just like aggravated, (laughs) you know, like, and you're like, I shouldn't be here. I'm tired. I need to go to bed. Someone like, you know, texts you and you're like, ugh, they're annoying me. Like, it's just like, it's like an unhappy state, but that first half hour. So it's again, intentionality of like, where do you spend so that you get the most out of the time that you're spending? And that's the point. One of the really good examples of of how you define what is useful time is the time jar. Can you talk us through that? Because that's so help. I think that's so helpful in the idea that you can fill it so easily with. Well, you you yeah. tell you tell us exactly and it what, will you, be what filled, the time whether jar you represents. Fill it or not. Yes, Um, exactly. Yeah, and this is a really helpful analogy um, that I continue to touch back to when making my own time spending decisions and. It's actually nicely shown in a short film that I share in my first day of class. And in the film, a professor walks into his classroom and on the desk at the front of the room, he puts a large clear jar. And then from a bag on the side into the jar, he pours um, golf balls such that the golf balls reach the very top of the jar. And he asks the students, is the jar full? And the students nod their head because yes, the jar looks full. And he's like, nope. From the bag, he pulls out a bunch of pebbles and he pours the pebbles into the jar and the pebbles fill the spaces around the golf balls up to the very top. And he asks the students, is the jar full? And the students are like, yes, the jar looks full. It's like, nope. From the bag, he pulls out sand and he pours the sand into the jar and the sand fills all of those spaces between the golf balls, between the pebbles up to the very top. And he asks the students, is the jar full? full and by this point the students are like laughing they're like yes the jar is full but there was one more step from the um bag he pulled out um two bottles of beer he opened one poured it into the jar and then he opened the other and he sort of goes and to the front of the desk and perches himself takes a sip and he explains this jar is the time of your life those golf balls are all those things that really matter to you your family members, your friendships, that work that you do that you really love and are passionate about and sort of aligned with your purpose. The pebbles are all those other important things in your life, like your job, your house. The sand though, the sand is everything else. The sand is all of that stuff that will fill your time. And what's really important to know is had he poured the sand into the jar first, all of the golf balls would not have fit. And so if you let your time get filled mindlessly, unintentionally, you know, to your point, Annabelle, it will get filled. It's just 
it will make it so that you don't have time for that stuff that really matters to you. And so the important thing is, is we do need to become proactive, intentional, as opposed to reactive and just like life happening to us, which is scary and stressful and anxiety producing, is identify your golf balls. What are those things that really matter to you? And put them into the jar first, like schedule them, make time for them. And then the sand, like everything, the sand will come in, it will fill everything else. But as long as you have made time for and spent time for and been engaged during that time for those things that really matter, then it's fine if you're busy, right? (laughs) Like fine to be busy as long as you have spent and invested in those things that really matter to you. And so those golf balls can like I that's also a big part of the book is to help you identify what are your golf balls what are those things that really matter to you what are those sources of joy those sources of connection those sources of fulfillment and it can be a really simple mundane ordinary thing like I, I share the example of my weekly coffee date with my daughter this is so ordinary and it like is born out of a very functional routine of me wanting to get coffee on the way to drop her off at her preschool. But we turned what was routine into a ritual. We made it special. We've given it a name and we started when she was three. Now she's seven and we do it every week and it's just a half hour. It's not a lot of time. But it's really special time that we look forward to. So like even beyond the time that we're spending during it, it's like there's the anticipation and then there's the remembering and talking about. And so those 30 minutes have a really profound impact on my satisfaction in life even because I'm like, when you ask me like, how happy are you or how satisfied? I'm like, I'm really, I am really satisfied. And because what am I sort of pulling to my mind? It's like, I have a really lovely relationship with my daughter and you know like I really do love the work that I do because I've like carved out time to actually do the work that I love whereas you know the sand responding to email showing up to meetings that could ultimately have filled the last 15 years of my career but (laughs) I have been really intentional to like make sure that I protect time for the work that really matters like writing this book so that it like I feel a sense of progress and fulfillment you said the word purpose earlier which I'm not going to take as an act of aggression I'm going to say (laughs) yes we're all very interested in that and there's some stuff in your book around how to get to the bottom of the why yeah because you know I think you know you're busy you're tired and you spend a lot of time if you do stop to think what you're sort of thinking is what's the point And honestly, the pandemic has led all of us to think, what's the point? Um, Mm. It has been a very existential experience um, for everyone. I mean, whether you personally lost someone, it just made us all realize that life is fragile. And that's why time is so important, because the hours of our days sum up to the years of our life. And when we recognize just how fragile and finite life is, it makes us realize how important those hours are. <laughs> and so, and that leads us to think about what's the point. No, I couldn't actually bear to that you have a whole chapter on 
and we talked about it a little bit before about you know the 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 how much time you have left to do things and it's almost like if you read a book a week and you're going to live another four it is literally that isn't it and you're going to live another 40 years therefore there are only so many more books you're going to read and once you realize that every book you read is precious and 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 you know I and but then you'd start doing that with if you only have dinner with somebody you love twice a year and you're only gonna that's only that many dinners and I actually got quite it's interesting I got quite panicky thinking about it um and I think that um yeah, I got a bit scared. It was scary. It's scary to think that you and it and it does put the pressure on the purpose, and I, which I think is a good thing. But you know, and I think obviously I will sh- I have to like react to that fear and then start thinking about how I can, you know, respond to it in a positive way. But it is. But it is. It is. You know, we can no longer hide from well, that. I think. Do you know what I mean? That there isn't that... a tipping point for that. It's like okay, yeah. so here comes the next bit, mm-hmm. which is why you know, which is why you know your why exercises, I, I think, are quite because you could apply this, you, you say, why, why is that important? Why do I care about that? Um, and so on and so forth. But that you don't, that doesn't have to be about your career, does it? No. It can be again, about small decisions that you make. And I'm starting to think, having read your book that, you know, then the big decisions will come rather than the other way around. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the five whys exercise is an exercise to help you identify what is your purpose and the purpose being like, it's such a loaded word that I'm like, you know, you sort of like, ugh, roll your eyes. But what it is, is basically like what motivates you? What are those goals? Like that sort of higher order goal. Like what do you ultimately care about of like doing? And it's basically, so to answer, like, it doesn't have to be about like, it doesn't have to start with your work of like, what do you do for work? It would be like, what do you do? And why do you do that? And then your answer to why you do that, ask again, well, why does that matter to me? And when you ask sort of five layers of why as to why you do what you do, then you really sort of uncover and identify like what what motivates you? Like what really does matter to you? And what's helpful about this is that it allows you to be very, it's a personal thing. It's not like these are general notions of success, which my MBA students like really struggle with. Like what is success? And like, it's tied to like money or procedure, these things that are constantly changing and someone else, like it like shows up differently for other people. So you always feel like you're (laughs) lacking, right? But with your, when you identify like what really motivates you, then that's all that matters. It's like, why do you do that? And then you can use that as a filter for like, do you say yes to that invitation? <laughs> it's like, or do you say yes to that project? Um, or, you know, do you say yes to spending your hour in that particular way? The, the five whys is, is interesting. And actually, like, <laughs> I'm sure, Emily, if you didn't like the counting times left, maybe the eulogy <laughs> exercise was even more like, Terrifying. Terrifying. Actually chilling. Terrifying. I wasn't even going to mention the eulogy exercise. Also, they were so beautiful, the eulogies. And I thought, oh, my God, I haven't even looked at my life this way. And it was, yes, okay. Anyway, sorry, Cassie. I mean, yes, yet another horrifying um, exercise, which my purpose is not to make everyone sort of profoundly scared of their death. It is to help people gain some clarity onto, like, what life do you want to live? And with that sort of thinking about like, 
what matters, like taking a step back from the sort of onslaught of day-to-day requests and, you know, the sense of urgency in the hour. It's like, take a step back, think about your life as a whole. And we actually find in our, our research that when people think about their time more broadly, thinking in terms of years in their life overall, instead of hour by hour, they are actually report greater feelings of meaning, satisfaction, and even happiness in their days because they have more sort of clarity on like what matters, like almost like what are those golf balls? And with that, using that as a filter of like, and a guide to how do I spend my hours? So thinking about your life overall helps inform how do you spend your hours? You know, what do you say yes to? What do you say no to? What activities do you pursue? So Annabelle, like, it's a really exciting opportunity, this sort of new year that seems like a blank slate of like, okay, what matters to you? Like, what do you want to spend your time on? Like, and that's yes, exciting. and trying to, to create some intention before all that sand rushes in, right. correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I've got ideas. I might have to go because I might have to go and put, put things into my diary. I'm just thinking <laughs> I must put in gallery for a Friday afternoon rather than just, you know stare at the wall <laughs> fantastic I'm so excited so if you've you. left me with that then you've left me with something um Cassie thank you so much for coming to talk to us um and Cassie's book uh happier hour how to spend your time for a better more meaningful life is out now uh thank you so much and I think it's a really really useful really optimistic um read to take you into 2023 Yeah, I completely agree, apart from the fact that I was terrified of one bit of it. But generally, I mean, the fact that you say really early on, you say having loads of money, being gorgeous or all of those things sound like they're secrets to living happily, but they're not. And I think that's the real key to remember exactly that it's about what makes you feel, I don't know, present, connected, engaged with, you know, the people you love. And that's how wonderful for it's that that we can aspire to rather than and that. wearing yeah. sparkly fancy cowboy boots in the kitchen even yes. if you're trying to break them in <laughs> just the thought of you wearing those boots like on a you know random evening cooking dinner it's fantastic i love it she's gonna go and put them on now i can tell Look at this, that <laughs> yeah. naughty Look twinkle in her eyes um cassie holmes you've been amazing thank you so much thank you You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Middle. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.